I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for coming to the Dropbox podcast studio. We're so excited to have you. Um, we're here to celebrate all these amazing contributors to the creative community. Uh, each week, these podcasters share their passion with millions of listeners, covering every topic from design to technology, culture to politics and music. And at Dropbox, when we're creating, we're creating with them in mind. What's up? This is Rebel Radio. What up, what up? This is DJ Newmark. This is Peanut Butter Wolf. It's your boy. It's okay. You're checking out Rebel Radio. Rebel Radio. This is Rebel Radio. We're in the place right here. Uh, Rebel Radio is going down. What did you say? Rebel Radio? Oh, wait. Let's do it again. Rebel Radio. Okay, this episode of Rebel Radio is brought to you live at South by Southwest as part of the Dropbox Podcast Studio. Shout out to my folks at Dropbox. If you don't use Dropbox, I don't know what's wrong with you, but it's great for file sharing. We're using their new Dropbox paper. I'm not a Dropbox uh, pitch man here, but uh, this is just an honest shout out because they brought us to South by Southwest and put us on stage in front of a great audience. And I really appreciate everything they did for Rebel Radio. So make sure you support Dropbox. The Dropbox podcast studio was a great day of podcasting. Uh, including Design Matters, Reply All, Snap Judgment, Homemade Stories. My man Shannon Kaysen does an amazing show uh, that you might want to check out. And of course, Rebel Radio, where my guest was Catherine Burns, the artistic director of The Moth. If you don't know The Moth, it's one of my favorite things. It's uh, true stories told live. They do storytelling events all over the world. It's been over 20 years they've been doing this. They've had over 20,000 stories on stage, celebrities, regular people just like you, uh, just some of the most amazing stories that'll make you laugh, cry, whatever it is you do, you will do it with the moth. And Catherine is also the editor of a new book called All These Wonders. It's a collection of moth stories. Uh, I'm about halfway through it now, but there's a story by Louis C.K. that is just incredible. Um, it is so sad and enjoyable to read. Anyway, I hope you support The Moth and check out the book and listen to my interview with Catherine Burns. 
right after our EDM.com track of the week. Shout out to EDM.com for our track of the week. That's Chromac with a track called Collide. That's on the Ivory Oasis label. Go to SoundCloud.com slash Ivory Oasis. And now listen to my interview with Catherine Burns live at South by Southwest. Hey. Hey, everyone. <laughs> Welcome. Thanks for coming out. And thank you for making the stop. I know you're here speaking uh, Tuesday, I think. Yep. <laughs> and uh, so we're going we're gonna to talk about that. It sounds like a fascinating topic on the science of storytelling. Yeah. And so I appreciate you making time for this. Thanks so much for inviting advance. me. First of all, I know that the moth is um, true stories without notes. Yeah. I am going to use notes. Mm. Please, I almost brought them for this, so yeah. And uh, specifically to give a plug to Dropbox, I'm going to use Dropbox paper. Um, awesome. Which is where I, <laughs> I kept my notes and collaborated with my team, so. Great. Thanks to Dropbox for having us. Um, so is, do we know the moth? Are we, are we moth fans? Has anyone been to a moth? <laughs> Should we say, does anyone not know the moth? Well, I don't want to. I don't want to. Okay, yeah. Put them on the spot. <laughs> okay. But I, I love the moth. I've been, I think, five or six times in L.A. Story Slam, main stage. Um, I, I'm, I'm all about it, and I listen to the to the podcast and the radio hour, and all that. And so I'm a huge fan. So I'm excited Thank to you. learn. Absolutely. Um, I'm excited to learn kind of about how it happens and kind of what that means to you and, and some of the choices. So we're going to get into that. I also want to um, show your new book, uh, All These Wonders, that's written by you. But edited by me. Edited by you. It's written by all the beautiful storytellers, essentially whose stories are featured in it. Okay, cool. Well, I can't wait to read it, um, and I encourage everyone to go get a copy of All These Wonders. Hey, It comes out next week. Nice. And actually, I should say, it's not written by, it's sort of an interesting thing about the book is that people told their stories live for us, and then we transcribed what they actually said yeah. and edited that. And we edited it in a way that hopefully we kept the liveness yeah. of it, as opposed to it be be, them being rewritten for the page. Yeah. So it was kind of a fun process. Yeah. So I want to start by, by kind of talking about you. Um, and you've made storytelling and being part of that process now your life and your career. Yeah. Um, 
was was there a was that always a fascination? Do you have a favorite story you remember from from childhood, like from a book or movie? That's interesting. I mean, I think I always did love stories. I mean, I grew up with, I'm from the South. I'm from a small town in Alabama. Yeah. So I grew up with my grandmothers telling me these complicated stories, you know, about the ancestors, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so I, I always really loved it. Like you know, the idea of just a single person sharing a story with another person. And you know, when I grew up, I actually wanted to be a filmmaker when I was a little kid. But I think it's because that's just what I saw. Yeah. Like I was living in a rural community. There wasn't even really much theater there wasn't a ton of music, actually. So when I thought, I, I had an artistic soul, and I would go to the movie theater. So I thought, oh, that's what you, that's a thing that you can do. Sure. But I think looking back, what I really <laughs> was thinking was, it would be amazing to make, to be involved in something artistic where you're collaborating with incredible people that you love and respect, making something that touches people or moves them in some way or makes them think. And so when I was six or seven, that was film. Yeah. Because um, I had no idea there could be anything like the moth at that Sure, point. yeah, of course. It didn't yeah. exist yet. Yeah. And I wonder if it, if it would really exist without the web and, and podcasting and, and the tools that are available today. Definitely. I mean, obviously, people have been telling stories in their, in their homes, and I know the moth started that way. Yeah. So, yeah, so our, should we do the origin story? <laughs> sure, yeah. Because <laughs> it's fun. Yeah. Uh, so George Dawes Green is our founder, and uh, he grew up on an island off the coast of Georgia called St. Simon's Island. And he and his friends, they didn't have cable out there. They would get together on their friends' porches, and they would tell stories and play poker and, as I understand it, drink a lot of Jack Daniels. Uh-huh. So there was a hole in the screen, and the moths would flutter around. And so they started calling themselves the moths. They would say, you know, the moths will meet tonight. So he moves to New York City, and he felt, the way he describes it is that people all, all spoke in sound bites. If you're at a party talking to somebody, you've got the feeling that they weren't listening to you so much as just waiting for you to stop talking so they could start talking. And um, he really wanted to try to bring to New York City the spirit of these nights on the porch in Georgia. And so the first one was actually in his living room. He invited 100 friends over. Wow. And had asked five, the deal was that five people got to talk with nobody interrupting them. <laughs> and, that's um, hard to and do. And that's how it all began, I know. <laughs> yeah. Almost 20 years ago, our 20th anniversary is coming up. Wow. That's amazing. And now it's grown to events all over the world and books uh, and... Yeah, for a long, media. long time, we were just in New York City. Mm-hmm. We'd occasionally do a tour. We actually came through Savannah and like, I mean, through Savannah, through Austin in like 2006 oh. um, for a show right at the Alamo Draft House, just uh-huh. down the street. Um, but really, things really took off when we started our podcast and then yeah. a year later, the radio show, because sure. suddenly we could find a wider audience. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and, and what about you? So, I, the way I understand it is you went to a moth event. Yes. Fell in love with it. Madly in love. And then... Just moved to New York City. It was like a few nights later. Yeah. And, I mean, I was at that point very entrenched in the film world and the TV world. And I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And it was hard because like, that was all I'd ever wanted to do. Yeah. But it was like, I think I was finding myself really worn down by... The, even on an indie film, it takes 15 people to, in the room to tell a simple story. Right. And I found that aspect of filmmaking very overwhelming. And I knew that the more... If I were to become more successful, the more people would be in the room. Of course, right? yeah. And so the thing I hated about the most was only going to get worse the better I did. Yeah. And I was really struggling with it when I discovered The Moth. And I think the idea that you could just have a single person on stage sharing their story in front of a live crowd who's listening. And I love the intimacy of it. Like when the moth really works, every single person in the audience feels like that person is talking just to them. Yeah. 
And so I fell in love and just started trying to help them out in any way I could. You know, I'd be like, can I steal a beta cam from work and shoot the show? Because sometimes oh, cool. they'd be shooting on like, like a high eight camera. I'm dating us, you know, right. from the side of the stage. Sure. And I was like, no. And so I was always just trying to help them out in any way I, I could. And then eventually there were, there were two people on staff and one person quit and uh-huh. I became the second. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. So, and, and now we see that... Um, you know, so I saw. You know, I went to my my first moth event. It was sort of like amazed. It was a story slam. So people were just kind of. It was open mic, right? Essentially, um, but I was amazed at the uh, the level of storytelling, mm-hmm. right? Because I had always thought, yeah, maybe I'll go up there if the if the mood strikes me, and I'll just say a few things or whatever. And then once I got there, I realized, okay, that's not what's happening here. And now in your current job, it's about helping storytellers shape their stories. Yeah, I mean, that's the best thing. There's a team of about five of us yeah. who are out there trying to find people and figure out what story, you know, who has a story and help them tell it the best they can. Because one of the reasons we work with people is because the stories aren't memorized, but we 10 minutes goes by really fast. Yeah. So if you are prepared, you'll get up there and get halfway through your story and you're out of time. And so, and, but also sometimes people need a little bit of help trying to figure out what the heart of the story really is about for them. And it's helpful to have an outside person to bounce it off of. Yeah. So it's sort of interesting, though, because the, so the piece you didn't like about movies was all the people involved. <laughs> and, but, but there's people involved even in creating these stories, obviously not to the extent of making a movie. There are, but far less, which yeah. is so nice. I mean, generally, we have a team of directors, and each, they work one-on-one with the storytellers. I mean, there's a lot. We do a weekly you know, casting call. I don't know if I love the word casting. You know, it's not quite what the moth is, but we all get on and we talk about all the shows that are coming up and who we're looking at for them, and we all contribute to that. But when it comes down to really working on the story, it's really that director and that storyteller. And as artistic director, I weigh in and I'm there to help them. Mm-hmm. And we all really weigh in and help each other, but ultimately it's really, there is an intimacy between the director and the storyteller. It's, it's not storytelling by committee, sure. like I think yeah. the film world can sometimes be. So I want to talk about that relationship a little bit, and, and specifically, so storytelling, I know you're speaking on this on Tuesday, but storytelling has become this huge buzzword in marketing and advertising circles, in entertainment circles, um, the last few years, right? And Definitely. I, I have a joke dream panel where it'll be me and Sharon Salzberg, Do you guys uh-huh. know she has the meditation teacher. And we will, it'll be us in conversation about which word is more overused, storytelling or mindfulness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> One day it'll happen. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's fair. That's a fair comparison. So, so it's completely overused. Every brand you know, that I've talked to in the last few years wow. is consumed with the idea of storytelling. Um, I think very few of them even come close to, to getting it right or even, even really actually wow. telling stories. Um, so maybe let's walk us through the, what does it take to make a, a great story? Well, one of the qu- things that we often say, or we talk a lot about stakes. So what are the stakes for that person? So in order to start with, in order to have a great story, you need to be talking about something that matters to you. Because what are stakes are, what, what do stake, what does it mean stakes? It means do I, how much do I care about what you're saying? Sure. And for me to care, you have to convince me how much you care, basically. So to start with, we, need to, we always try to find stories that really mean something to the storytellers. 
And sometimes one of the fun things is like people come to us with like little anecdotes, like little stories that they've told at dinner parties again and again. Mm -hmm. And often we find that if you dig into those and start asking questions, that there'll be something bigger that that is really about for them and that there's a reason they tell that over and over. Yeah. Um, like one of the more dramatic examples is um, the actress Lily Taylor told a story that I was I asked her that question I was like you know what story do you get told again and she goes oh well, absolutely it's my story about how my shrink of like 10 years at one point she found out that he has this rare mental disorder where he had spent the last many many years flying all around the world trying to get someone to amputate one of his legs oh my goodness right and so she, you can see how that's a cocktail party story and like so crazy right. but really when you dug into it it, it really was a crisis for her because here she had a very intimate relationship with him. And he would actually, she would, she tells about this in the story. She would bring her scripts to him. They would do char character analysis together. He knew her so well. And when she found out that he was like, really, you know, had some real issues, to put it lightly, yeah. I think she really doubted herself. Like, why couldn't she see that? And why was she putting her trust in someone who, in some ways, I mean, what this story really comes down to is what do you do when you find out that your your therapist is maybe crazier than you are? Mm -hmm. But it, so there, it really <laughs> was a bad, it really did cause a crisis in her life, even though she'd been wow. telling this funny story at cocktail parties for years. Yeah. And so often that's the case, is that you start out with something small. Like a, a, another dramatic example is Nathan Englander, the writer. Okay. He has this really funny story he tells, let me see if I can quickly summarize it, where he and his friends are in this train going through Eastern Europe, and in the middle of the night, there's, they hear people are knocking on the door and banging and screaming, and they lock the door and won't open it, and they wake up in the morning and discover that some point in the night, the train had been, their car had been disconnected from the whole rest of the train, and they were just a train alone in the tracks in the middle of nowhere. Oh my like, God. they literally didn't know what country they were in. So you can, again, see how that's the cocktail party story. Yeah. But when we dug into it, um, it turns out Nathan was raised in an extremely religious Jewish household. And to, to quote him, a full-on diet of the Holocaust. Mm. And so when, what those trains represent, I mean, the, as he says, these are the trains that took my people to their annihilation. So the truth is, when he wakes up in the train in the middle of Eastern Europe, right after the wall came down and doesn't know where, where he is, it really brought on a full-on panic attack yeah. that brought him deep into like the fears of him, his grandparents. And so it was really about something much bigger. And we were able to turn it into a beautiful story, which I hope retains the humor of the anecdote, mm -hmm. but that also gets into something a little bit deeper in Nathan's life. Yeah. So, so you got the stakes. Yeah. Right. And you, and, and then what? Um, okay. So the way each of our directors works a little differently, but okay. I've been, God, doing this for about 15 years. And so the way I tend to do it is I'll get on the phone or get together with him in person and ask him a million questions. And we kind of break the story wide open mm -hmm. and until we and I hear every little thing. And then I will send them an email where I outline their own story for them. Oh, nice. Because what I find is that people sometimes find it helpful to have a stranger repeat back what they heard. Yeah. And they'll just, and it's not written out because the stories aren't memorized. It's just bullet points. Like, 10 is what I shoot for. Mm -hmm. And I go through, and sometimes there's questions in there, like, tell me more about this, or what about that? And did you connect this to that? And then they'll respond to it. And we go back and forth until we have a, sort of an agreed upon working outline. Then we get together again, and they try to tell me the story using the outline. 
And it averages about 20 minutes. You know, people just, it takes so much longer. They think that, sure. I, I call it with love, the free to suck version. Because <laughs> the idea is you just want to get it out of your mouth once yeah. altogether. And then I'm sitting there writing, taking notes, trying to figure out, you know, where they can cut down. And so what we try to do is trim, 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 so that what's left is the things that matter the most and a structure that can be told in 10 to 12 minutes on stage. Yeah. So... So how does that apply to selling toilet paper? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you should ask Kate, who runs our corporate program. Right. So I know you guys, you guys yeah. do corporate consulting. We do. Right? Well, actually, but, I mean, I can't answer that. Okay. Um, here's an example. The, the, very, the Moss very first corporate program, which I was at, because this is so many years ago, um, we were working with this company. They were like, will you come teach us storytelling? And we're like, what? Why would you? That's the craziest thing we've ever heard. Yeah. But this is long before the buzzword. So we go to Boston and we sat down with this company and they were telling us about how they were, they work on medical equipment and it's very particular. And they were giving us like the numbers and the statistics and why there's just better. We were honestly in a coma. You know, sure. also, what do we even know of this world? Yeah. And then it, almost in passing as we were going to lunch, they said, yeah, the medical equipment is so sensitive that we actually have to plan our lab experiments around the commuter rail that goes a mile away because the, the vibrations of a train a mile away will affect our research. And we're yeah. like, hello. That's the <laughs> and story. So that's the story. That yeah. you can understand. I can understand. Yeah. And so often th th that is, I think, where if co the companies can tell what is beautiful and special about their brands better. Mm -hmm if they can look at it through the lens of story. But it can be very tough. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's tough for brands to think like human beings, mm -hmm. which is weird because they, because they are human beings at those <laughs> yeah. companies. Um, but there's something about the corporate process that, yeah. that nullifies that in people. Yeah, I think that that's true. It can, I mean, if people, since people just have to get out of their own way, right, and see their brands in a fresh way, yeah. that's a lot of what our, our, our pro, I don't, I'm not active in the day-to-day -day of it. That's sure. It was like, you know, but it, but that's a lot of what it's about. Yeah. It's trying to just help people see what they do in a fresh way yeah. so they can find a way to tell their story that's more authentic to who they are so they can connect with the people who need and want what they're doing. Yeah. So talk about that. Since we're talking about companies, um, the Moth is a company, it's a non-profit, right? Um, but, you know, so the way I understand it, you fell in love with, with the product yes. first, right? And then you joined this company with, it was a couple people. Yeah. And now it's 100 plus. Yes. Um, how would you describe the, the company culture at the Moth and why does that work for you? I feel like the moth still feels like a family. I mean, maybe that's going to change at some point, but I hope not. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you that we're bigger than we were. We have about 30 full-time, and then I think you're right, about 100, 150 part-time, spread around the world. And, um, and everybody's there out of love. Yeah. I mean, as far as I can tell. Like yeah. I, you know, the people are there because they care about stories. They want to do something with their life that has meaning. And that, I mean, one of the, there's a, we often quote in like executive team meetings, um, there's Tina Fey in her book, Bossy Pants. She talks about how if you're lucky enough to run a company where 
people are there out of love and they, they're just so excited to come to work every morning that the biggest part of your job is, she, I think she calls it managing enthusiasm. Uh-huh. And that's definitely how it is at the moth. Like if yeah. anything, it's just like, we're going to do 25 things. Like maybe we should just do one. You know, but um, but sure. yeah, we have an incredible team. We are so lucky. Yeah. That's big. I mean, the people that you spend your time with. Yeah. That kind of makes or breaks the experience. Yeah. A lot of us... Um, of the directors we and our executive director, Sarah, we've all, some of us have been around for the almost the full 20 years. I've only been there, if you count my volunteering, like 17. <laughs> but some people, two, Meg Bowles and Jennifer Hickson were there the very in the very first year with George when he founded it. And so it really creates a certain atmosphere. But what's been amazing is in the last, gosh, just seven years, um, we've gone from a staff of five to a staff of 30. And so all the, in many cases, younger, amazing people who are joining our team, they're just, they're changing the culture in the best possible way. And we're doing things that we could have never dreamed of in the beginning because they're there. Sure. Yeah. So it's been, it's like a fun balance there of us old timers mm-hmm. <laughs> um, trying to, to bring in the ideas of the newer, often younger employees and, you know, try to hold on to what makes us special. But at the same time, grow and move forward. So is that a conscious thing to like shape and, and preserve the culture or does it just happen organically? I think it's fairly conscious. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely like a respect for the, like the storytellers. This is a big part of our culture. Like mm-hmm. we're really only there, like the stories are the stars for, for everybody. Yeah. And we all treat our jobs like we are there to serve the storytellers. Yeah. So, and I think if we ever lose that, then we're going to lose the heart of who we are. Hey, if you're enjoying this one, I hope you are. Uh, Go back in the Rebel Radio archives. Check out an interview with Dave Nadelberg. He's the founder of Mortified, which is another storytelling event series, podcast, uh, Netflix show, all kind of good stuff. He's got people reading from their childhood diaries, their most mortifying stories and memories um it's he's got he's got some great stories to tell there so after you finish this one go back and listen to that one but uh right now let's finish up with Catherine burns so how does that um so you've worked with hundreds of storytellers yeah shaped you know helped shape their stories um how what have you learned that doesn't work and like how have you adjusted your process we can definitely speak to that. So right when I took over as artistic director, um, we, for the first time, so we have our open mic story slams yeah. that are in like 28 cities around the world. And then and before that, we had our main stage, which is the more curated, where we actually go out, pick people out, work with them on their stories, and then put them on stage. And so right when I came in as artistic director, maybe because I had done, told slam stories and been a part of that community, me and Leah Tao, who ran the company with me at the time, um, she she was our executive an artistic she was our executive director. We started trying to pull in the people, sorry, who were coming to the slams and put them on the main stage. Mm-hmm. And we also at the same time started doing shows at the Aspen Comedy Festival, which was a thing for a while, the US Comedy Arts Festival. And so we were working with more comedians. And I think we got we we ugh. The stories got maybe a little slick, mm-hmm. and we, we, we lost a little bit of the stakes, like that people weren't always coming and telling the story that was like the biggest story for them. Um, one of the few ways you can bomb at the moth is to perform. Yeah. Is to show up and like do your routine and come at the people. The, 
you know, that's almost the only way is you can come be memorized, seem slick. You can get, we call it head in the desk drawer syndrome where you're on stage talking, but you're really just trying to remember your little right. speech that you sure. left backstage in your purse on a piece of paper. And so we ran into a little bit of that, but I'm proud to say we course corrected quickly. Yeah. And so it's not, we still have amazing comedians tell stories for us all the time, but it's the ones who really want to come and be vulnerable and open their hearts and really put themselves in it in a different way. Um, it, so, and, and yeah. also the same thing with like, the slam community. Some of the greatest stories ever told of the moth have been told by people that we met at the slams. Many people in that book, our first book, 14 of the 50 were people we'd met at the slams. But the trick is that you have to come and sometimes tell a little bit of a bigger story mm -hmm. in order to sustain it for 10 minutes versus yeah. like the slams, the stories are five minutes. You can come do a little fun thing. You have to sometimes put a little more thought to sustain it for 10 minutes. Yeah. So once we fixed that, <laughs> things smoothed out. Yeah. Yeah, I saw, uh, I think it was last year, I saw Cheech yeah. in L.A. And, you know, I've been a lifelong Cheech and Chong fan and, and was really excited to see him. And, and, and it struck me that, like, you know, this is probably a story he's told thousands of times. It was about how Cheech and Chong formed. Yeah. And, but it was told in a way that felt like we were sitting on his couch. He definitely put himself out there and did an amazing job. Yeah. I mean, we've had a number of course corrections. We went through a period where the stories got really, really serious. Uh -huh. um, there was one show that I will throw myself under a bus because I directed it, where every single person, someone died in their story. Oh, my God. And the woman who had to open, because she had the light story, was a woman who was nine months pregnant on a jet blue flight that almost crashed. And we're like, well, you have to open because you have the light story. It was insane. And so <laughs> we just were like, okay, maybe we could lighten up and have a little less death and a little more humor. And yeah. so we started really actively kind of going after what we call romps, you know, stories that are more... You know, just there to be humorous. Not that they don't have heart, sure. But the, you know, the, somebody, the plane doesn't go down in every story. So. Well, that's one of the things I think that works about the moth, and and it, you know, thinking about our earlier conversation about the brand stuff, right? Is that you know, an evening at the moth takes you through a range of emotions, right? right? You get sad and you laugh and you get you know frustrated, and you you know you get excited and and all these different things. And yeah, I think if it were just one then that would get boring pretty quickly or it'd get, you know, macabre or... That's the fun thing about putting the shows together is we're always looking for the balance of the show. Like, yeah. you, you know, I mean, mo the best stories have serious moments and humorous moments in them, but, like, you don't want too many stories that are just so intense that you can't breathe right. in the same show. But then you also, you know, most people want a story that's going to make them tear up a little bit in any Moss show. I think they, we'd be disappointing them at this point if there wasn't one. Yeah. So we're always trying to look at the balance of show. I mean, just you know, also, like, age. You don't want everyone, single person in the show to be 35, and that right. can happen if we're not careful, or like, you know. Sure. So, um, it, so it, it's, it's fun. We try to just put a variety of people where each, the juxtaposition of each storyteller coming after the next is interesting. Mm -hmm. That's like, order is a huge thing for us, the yeah, order of the show. Yeah. yeah. Have you found certain patterns that make the best story? I mean, I know there's like the components of a story, but are there themes that like really win? There definitely, there's definitely topics that often lend themselves to amazing stories. Um, one of them, you know, we've had a lot of brilliant stories that involve adoption. Mm. Like to the point that now if you have an adoption story, it's a little like, it has to be really, there has to be some spin or because right. we've had so many. But um, like D, D, uh, D, Daryl from D, Run DMC uh -huh. told an amazing story about finding out he was adopted at like 35. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
and the, that throwing you into a crisis that gets resolved by listening to Sarah McLaughlin's Angel over and over. If you've, he's such a lovely oh story if you haven't heard it. He's amazing. That. But yeah, so that, that's one of the things. I'm sure I could think of a lot, but there's, I mean, definitely like losing someone um, is something, but you, we have to be careful with that because, you know, there's like topics. I don't, know, I don't know if I've ever talked about this in public. I'm like, hmm, maybe I should think it through but better, but it's no, like, no, like topics no, just that... Um, that are like, you have to really think about to do them in a fresh way. You know, like one of them is like, I got sick, but then I got better. Mm-hmm. And so like finding like some meaning or like really helping us understand what your illness meant to you. And it's not just enough that you got sick and you got better. Yeah. Um, th- yeah there's definitely certain, I've, I've heard, yeah, long before we stumbled on this, I heard Ira Glass talk about it. And he was talking about how they have whole categories of stories that they almost won't consider. Mm. And StoryCorps too. I'd heard, I think Dave Isay talk about that. And I was like, really, there's always a fresh way to do something. And then we got a few more years in and we're like, okay, that is a little bit of a thing. Um, But but that being said, there is always a fresh way to tell something. And so no topic is out for us. It's just you have to sometimes have a fresh take if it's a topic we've covered a lot in other stories. Well, I think that's an interesting point, though, because at a certain point and on the inside, it's got to feel like every story has been told. I don't feel that way. Okay. And I think that's why I get out of bed every morning still so excited to do my job. Okay. Because I'm always looking for that next interesting spin on something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I'm working with a wonderful storyteller right now who is a woman. Her story is about trying to get pregnant. She's married to a woman. And so it's like the bells and the whistles and the doctors. And the last time she put her body up in this situation was she was raped. Mm. And so then, like, how do you wow. put your, in such a completely different circumstance? And I'd never heard that before. Yeah. And it, coming soon, I hope. Yeah, we're working yeah. with her. Um, yeah, so there's, it's interesting. Like, I feel like every time I think I've heard every story, although I don't really ever think that, but if I felt that way, then the next day I meet someone with a story that I've never heard before and we're off again. Yeah. What role does the community play? You mean like the audience? Uh, yeah, either either live or 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 online. It's everything. Yeah. I, the audience is a huge part of what we do, and it, it. I mean, we always knew that in a way, but where it became obvious was when we tried to take the live show and put them and put it into different formats. So when we were first working on the podcast and then the, eventually the radio show, lots of people want us to take the storytellers, take them into a studio and have them retell the story to nobody and record it perfectly, or worse, type it out and read it. And what we discovered was the stories fell very flat that way. Mm. Um, And so when we started, when we finally found our partners, which is the amazing PRX, woo, um, we love them so much, and um, Jay Allison, um, who eventually became the producer of the radio show with us, um, one of the things that they were helped us see is that that live was so critical and that we had to go out and record all these shows live and that the radio show and podcast had to come from the live recordings. Mm-hmm. And that's why with the book, you know, we, I was, we were never interested in doing a book. And then actually our agent, Daniel Greenberg, was like, well, what if you just took the live recordings, transcribed them, and edited that? And suddenly yeah. we're like, yeah, that's how we do a moth book. Um, it's, it's that liveness. Because the audiences, they really contribute to the stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why we are so insistent against, again, to bring it up again, head to the desk syndrome because you want to actually be there connecting with the audience you want to as I try to do it myself you want to like look up look out um, because the energy of the audience can have a beautiful effect on the story they'll they'll lift you up and that energy is part of what makes the moth the moth 
Yeah, and I think that's a really unique thing. You know, I've heard a lot of people talk about stand-up comedy. Yeah. Right, which has a very different dynamic with the audience, right? And you have you have hecklers, or you have, you know, I'm, uh, might have been Jerry Seinfeld. It's like you know, some people come out to like to enjoy the process of feeling like the comic sucks. Yeah. Right. Right. He, he I'm sure he said it in a way that's much funnier. <laughs> but um, but that's not the experience at the Moth, right? And and nor is it like a play where there's. There really is no input from the audience. Right, where it's just the lines. No, exactly. Like, I'm pleased to say we've only ever had one heckler that I'm aware of, and it yeah. was at the Aspen Comedy Festival, and they, the storyteller actually stopped his story and yelled at them, and they were kicked out. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, it's actually the complete opposite of a, of a typical stand-up audience, where yeah. generally people come wanting to connect, wanting to hear. One of um, Bliss Briard, who's a, what's a board member years ago and has told so many Moth storytellers, she often says that, when a moth show is really working, it feels like the entire audience is holding hands under the table. Mm. And I think that's beautiful and still very true. Yeah. But the moth is also just a whole organization that was built in community. Like, we have a million volunteers, especially in the old days. There were two of us, but then an army of, like, literally 50 volunteers who were coming to the shows and handing out programs and um, just incredible people. Like I had been in the moth about a year when my mom died, and so I just suddenly had to disappear. There were only two of us. And my partner at the time received an email that was the schedule of when all these amazing women who volunteered, some of whom are now, God bless, on staff because we have the money to pay them, were going to come in and sit at my desk and answer the phones and respond to the emails. And they covered until I could come back. And that was in 2003, and not, not that much has changed. I mean, it's still just an incredible community of people. Sure. And, then, and, that, and what's nice is seeing these communities bubble up all around the world, around the shows. So has there been feedback? I mean, obviously you get story pitches. Yeah. Right? But has there been feedback that's come from the community that's kind of shaped the direction or, or changed what you guys are doing? I think so. I mean, definitely, like, sometimes, like, the like the shows have gotten too dark. Do you know, can we do have, like, a few less children dying, guys? And we're like, okay. Yeah. Um, that definitely came, came from the community, um, the feeling that maybe we were getting a little slick and stand-up-y. I mean, generally, we do get feedback. I mean, one of the things we're also aware is we also, we always want to be thought leaders when it comes to language. And so there's, I'll tell on ourselves here, there were a couple of stories that had references to Tourette's. Like, okay. I, I think Nadia Bellsweber told a story where she was talking about where she's cussing and praying in this fearful moment and she refers to herself as a monk with Tourette's. Mm-hmm. And like, 10 people with Tourette's wrote in and said, it is really a terrible thing. It's not funny. Yeah. I heard that and I was so hurt. And we were like, oh, of course. Yeah. And then that was gone. You know, yeah. but, so we, we, not that we think the audience should be there to educate us, but they do and we're grateful for it. So has that changed? I know like there's plenty of discussion about uh, political correctness right on, on both sides of that, the, the, the needs and benefits and, and, and it may be going too far in certain circumstances. Um, have you, are you guys seeing that? Is that? We talk about it a lot and I, I'll speak for all of us. I think when I say that isn't politi- political correctness really just referring to people the way they want to be referred to and what's wrong with that. And I think that that's where we stand on it. Yeah. So um, we try very hard to listen and like it's to make sure that we are try- out ahead of the game mm-hmm. when it comes to language. Yeah. Is it, um, does, the, does the political climate sort of affect the way that people are, are interacting with the moth? 
That's an interesting question. I mean, I definitely woke up the day after the election feeling ready to lead mm. and like that the moth was never going to be more needed Yeah. because we're, we just live in such a time where people are being so polarized. I mean, especially being yeah. from a small town in Alabama, I go home and yeah, I've, it has been my experience that when you actually talk to people on the you know, quote unquote other side that you'll agree on a lot more than you'll disagree on. Mm. And I think that the moth really can help with that because if we can stop just making people be the other mm -hmm. and take each of these things one story at a time, I think it helps you make your way through complicated issues better. It's not going to make everything perfect and we're not going to have everything sure. solved and wrap it up in a bow. But I think that it does take away the otherness and that has never been more critical than right now. You know, the way you talk about this, like, I don't know, you make it sound easy. <laughs> um, I mean, I get that it's a lot of work, but Thanks. it kind of feels <laughs> like everything just comes together and there's these amazing stories on stage <laughs> and on the, on the radio. Thank you. What's the, what's the hardest part of this? <sighs> That's an interesting, I mean, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, it's a very, it's, I mean, what we're basically taking, right, is we're taking people's, the, some of the biggest stories in their life. These things can be very raw. And we're turning into art on stage for people. And so I think that can be complicated. You know, there's, just, there's a lot of emotions. It's like what I was talking about earlier about um, managing enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. um, our staff, our community, our storytellers, they're a passionate bunch. And you know, a lot of people have a lot of wonderful ideas. You know, we only have so much capacity to do so much because you know, our budget is limited sure. and we only have so many people. And so I think the challenge is, is trying to figure out what can we do with the resources we have to have the most impact. And on my end, as the artistic director, that includes trying to keep our staff and community engaged where mm -hmm. we're doing as much as we can and like listening to ideas and keeping everything open and fresh. Yeah. But while, again, not lo losing that core mothness, which, you know, among other things, is like what we were talking about earlier, is like the role of the audience and, mm -hmm. and the things being live. And um, so, so you know, how do you grow without losing yourself? What about, you know, you talk about stakes, and, and I know there's, there's a lot of talk about vulnerability. Yeah. Um, is what, have you seen a downside to that? Is there, have there been consequences? that either your storytellers or that the organization has kind of had to face? I mean, definitely it can be scary being vulnerable. I mean, we've had people, we have a rule that apparently some, I've heard people think is crazy, but where if you tell your story and like a year later or 10 years later, you decide you don't want it up anymore because something happens, something changes in your life, yeah. we'll pull it down right like okay. that. Uh -huh. um, because we feel like we can't, they have to have faith and trust in us that we're going to take care of them and do what's best. So even if it's going to cost us you know, $10,000 to recut that radio episode or something somewhere down the line, we'll do it. Yeah. Um, we had a woman tell a really hilarious, gorgeous story about her divorce. And then her kids who were you know, seven at the time became 17 and were like, mom, we don't really like you having this story up that all of our friends are listening to about dad. Right. And we took it down. Um, so that does happen. Um, I mean, that, that's, I think that's part of the tricky part. I mean, of course, one, uh, one thing we haven't talked about is often it's really important to have people who usually have a little bit of time between the incident and then talking about it. Mm. And the reason is, is if it's too raw, right, it can kind of feel like therapy. And I think that's what you were getting at in your yeah. question is you don't, you, for their sake, you don't want it to be that way. So like we've had, like one of our great, greatest storytellers, 
her mother tripped over her own feet, hit her head in the airport and died. And like two months later, she went to talk about it. And I was like, no, sweetie, you're not ready. And she yeah. was furious with me. Then I'm relieved to say that like six months later, she was like, oh, thank God. Because um, most people, you know, Tig Notaro is like the wonderful comedian, moth storyteller, who famously like walked out on stage hours after being diagnosed with breast cancer until did a brilliant set about it. But most people aren't Tig. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we generally, we joke that it's like, T 10 years for death, five years for a divorce. Okay. Although a therapist recently told us it should be the reverse, that divorce is much more traumatizing than death. All right. But that you know, usually want a little time that go by. And I think the single most challenging artistic part sometimes of our jobs as directors is trying to help the person figure out if they're ready to tell it. Mm. Because if they're not, or if they're right on the edge, um, it can be, you don't want to send them out there you know, for the sake of the audience, but mostly for their sake, because you don't want them to get out there and fall apart and then regret doing it and like having go backwards also in their own emotional growth. Um, what about, you know, I know we're both parents of, of young children. Yeah. Um, and, you know, ours are a little bit young, but people love to say, you know, kids these days like overshare, yeah. you know, everything that crosses their minds or everything they eat or, you know, just these mundane moments of life. It's popular to build your social following based on that stuff. Yeah. Um, and so the moth obviously is very different, but I, I wonder how you think it fits into the, the general theme of just people sharing what's going on with them. I think that the moth people are sharing with a little bit of structure, right? And a little bit of thought. They're not just like knocking off a Facebook update. Right. I'm sure like Facebook is like the least cool thing for young people right now, but I'm right. in my 40s, so I'll make the Facebook update. <laughs> you know, they aren't just like knocking it off after kicking back a couple of beers. And so like, I think that's part of it is like deciding what you're going to share. I mean, we have a thriving, we, I don't know if you know that we have a high school slam program. Yeah. It's mostly in New York City, but these kids are unbelievable. I'm so proud that one of their stories is in the book. Mm -hmm. um, this wonderful kid named Christian. Um, and so I, we have just seen what it does to them. Like they, we have an all city program where they come from all over New York City's boroughs. They come to our office on Saturdays and practice. And the women who run that program, Michaela and Catherine, talk about how they show up and they're all kind of looking at each other like, who are you? And by the end of the first two hours, they're all best friends. Yeah. Um, but there is structure around it, especially when we're working with kids. I mean, I could we could do a whole hour on mm -hmm. that. And um, But because you want to make sure that what they're sharing is something they're ultimately going to be comfortable with. I mean, because otherwise people get, um, I think, is this, am I quoting Brene Brown? It's like a vulnerability hangover. Yeah. And you never want your storytellers to walk off stage with a vulnerability hangover. Right. Where they just feel like they've overshared and then they have regret and they feel yucky as opposed to feeling supported and connected as a result of telling their story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've started seeing TED Talks. I know Brene Brown and there's another one I saw recently about that idea of like, in the moment, you're just sharing all this stuff, and then later on, you look back and you kind of regret it all. Oh, no, yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, I think it's probably a transformative experience to, to tell a story in the moth. Um, how, has, how has it transformed you working with all these storytellers? <sighs> I mean, this job is like one of the great loves of my life, so I feel so lucky to get to do it. I hope that it's made me a more open person and someone who's been more, who's more willing to myself be vulnerable. Mm. I mean, I certainly tried to lead that way. I mean, we're, most of us, the moth, we're almost all women. Like everyone, I believe it's like the top third of the masthead, we're all women. Mm -hmm. And so we're always asking ourselves, like, how do we lead in a new way and not just copy models that we've seen somewhere? Mm. 
So I mean, I hope that it has made me someone who's more willing to come to both my friends and family in my life, but also my work life with more of an open heart. Um, because, I mean, one of the things about the moth is we're doing something that's just a little bit different than something that's been done before. So we have to make our own path always. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're lucky now to be surrounded by so many other brilliant people who are also doing storytelling shows. And I mean, it's such a lush, wonderful field of brilliant people now. But we, but we still, we always want to be charting our own path. And so we trying to do that in an open-hearted way, you know? I mean, I hope that that's what it's brought to me. That's what I feel like it's brought to me. But nice. I say that, I'd be like, I'm such an open-hearted leader. It's like, maybe not, but I try. <laughs> that's um, cool. Yeah. That's great. Um, okay, I have a little speed round before we, okay, yeah. before we wrap up. <laughs> um, so if you can go back to your 18-year-old self and give one piece of advice, what would you say? I would tell her to do less things, but to focus on the things that are most important to her. So I was that kid that was in like every club. Like I was famously the vice president of the Spanish club, even though I didn't speak Spanish. And I just like piled it all on. And I would go to, back to her and say, stick with the band because you love playing music with your friends and you're never going to get to play music again once you become a grown up. Uh -huh. um, What'd you and play? Like, uh, the clarinet. It's, okay. like, it's very on me. But anyway, that's what I play. So, um, right. I, mean, I love the clarinet, but I wanted to play the trumpet, but they didn't let girls play trumpet. It was the 1980s in Alabama. Hooray. Sure. They changed eventually. But um, yeah, so, um, but like, I, I think I, I would just tell her, like, I was the editor of the yearbook, and that seemed really important in college applications, but it mm -hmm. was over the period where you could learn Russian. <laughs> and I would tell her, forget the yearbook, that knowing conversational Russian is going to come up more in your life than anything else would have. My favorite show I've ever directed was actually in Dushanbe, Tajikistan, and I was oh, working wow. in Russian translation. Um, so, like, and I was always obsessed with the Cold War and curious about Russia. It's like, follow that curiosity. Don't just think that you need to do all of the things that everyone else thinks are important. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, is there a talent that you have always wished you'd had more of? Besides being able to sing. Doesn't everyone want to be able to sing? I guess I wish I were a better writer. I mean, okay. it's one of those things I think takes a lot of time and care. Some people are naturally amazing at it, but anything I, I don't write... I that's really plugging the book. But yeah. that. Well, I'm the editor. Oh, the editing, book. right. That's okay. very different. All right, so um, get the book. I, took, I wrote a little it's intro great. for that. It's like three pages. It was like pulling teeth, <laughs> my poor editor. It was like a month late. I was... Wh so, why, is, why is writing hard for you? Um, I just, I think that, I think that writing well is hard. I mean, maybe not for everybody, but for a lot of people. And so in writing well and learning to speak, to, to write the way you speak, but in a clean way, mm. it's not like, I'm not a very flowery person. I mean, I think that it's something that I would want to put more time into so I could just knock off the perfect email faster. Yeah. If you could choose another career and know that you wouldn't fail, what would you do? That is so hard, but I'm actually going to say it's like my alt life is my dream when I was a little girl, besides being an artist in some way, was being a surgeon for Doctors Without Borders. Oh, wow. I come from a family of doctors. My dad's an eye surgeon, my cousins. And there's something about the way the Doctors Without Borders doctors operate where it's not just that you have to do surgery, but you're in the middle of a crazy place helping the most vulnerable people in circumstances where creativity is absolutely necessary, mm. I admire those men and women more than almost anyone I can think of. And to be among them would be unbelievable. But it's awesome. probably a little late at this point. <laughs> Never know. <laughs> um, I get them to tell stories. That's the closest yeah, I come now. <laughs> that's pretty good. Uh, so if I worked on your team at the Moth, what is something I would hear you say over and over? <laughs> 
<laughs> Back to the stakes. What are the stakes? How can we raise the stakes? Is there a way to cheat the stakes up in that story? Yeah. There was an incident in an early road show where Jonathan Ames, the wonderful writer, and Mike Daisy instigated a pillow fight among everyone staying in the hotel, and they would knock on your door, and you would open it. They would run in and just pound you with pillows, and oh, wow. everyone who got pounded then joined the team with their pillows. And yeah. so there was an incident where I was lying in the floor of a hotel room in New Haven, Connecticut, with them slamming me into the floor, yelling, raise the stakes, raise the stakes. <laughs> and that was in 2003. It was already a thing. Wow. <laughs> Maybe 2004. Okay. Yeah. That's a good one. So who would you be most excited to learn was a fan of your work? Um, honestly, I have so many answers I could give, but the person that came to, comes to mind first is Shonda Rhimes. I adore her. Mm. I just think she's so fabulous. I think she's pushing our culture forward yeah. more rapidly than almost anyone else I can think of and in the smartest way, and I just fall to her feet. Well, let's get her on the moth. Okay, please, we fr we're trying, we're trying. Yeah. <laughs> Are you, are you a collector? Do you collect anything? Um, do I collect anything? I guess books. Yeah. But does that even count? But yeah, I have a sure. lot. My husband would say, I have a lot of books. Yeah. <laughs> and I've tried to get rid of books. Marie Kondo, I think, spoke yesterday. I was so cr crushed to miss her, miss throw everything away. But, like, but I hang on to my, to my books, yeah. What's the last great book you read? Um, a Little Life. Ugh, the woman cool. who wrote that. She said, do, have anyone read it here? It's so, it's a tough book. It's like 800 pages. And yeah. our staff, people started coming in with like dark circles under their eyes. And it was because they were staying up till three o'clock in the morning reading this book every night. And they're like, it's a very tough read. It's a beautiful story. It's about four men who meet in college. Mm -hmm. And it, it just tells the course of their life together. But it is a masterpiece and I couldn't put it down. And I nice. highly recommend it. Oh, cool. Um, what movie do you think you've seen the most in your life? It's between It's a Wonderful Life, okay. which I watch every Christmas Eve by myself while my husband is off at an event he and his brothers call a Pollenberg Jewy Christmas, <laughs> and my son sleeps. Um, it reminds me of my mom, and I do think that that movie is also a masterpiece. But I've also, I'm going to admit to you that Rick Burns' New York documentary, it is 14 hours long. Oh, my God. I own it, and I have seen it about a dozen times all the way through, and I will see it Many more times again, I hope. <laughs> what compels you to, to watch this over and over? I think I've always been obsessed with New York City ever since I was a little girl. I live there now. And I think the history of New York is the history of America in mm. so many ways. And so there's just so many beautiful stories that he pulls out of, of just how hard one getting to the point we are today, for better or worse, has been. Yeah. And I never get tired of the stories. Like, I wish I had the whole movie memorized so I could, like, just rattle off the stories when I'm standing on that street corner. But I haven't watched it in a while. Like, which is to say I haven't watched it in, like, 18 months. But, like, oh it's God. so gorgeous. Yeah. Wow. So that's a documentary. Is there a, is there a, uh, a dramatic film or TV show that you think best uh, depicts New York the way you see it? Oh, that's interesting. I feel like I'm not going to have a really good answer. That's not one of my spot. speed round questions. I know. I just I, thought I, of that. I love New York. I mean, I, there, I love movies set in New York. You know, I've seen like Hannah and her sisters and some of these movies a trillion times. I feel like I should have a better answer though. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's so many. I mean, New York is so many different things, right? Yeah. So it, it is both Spike Lee, you know, mm -hmm. um, and Woody Allen. And I hate myself them listing all men right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I don't know. If Sarah like, Jessica Parker. Yeah, sure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's so 100% <laughs> true. I know people Maybe who not. feel like it's a documentary. Okay. But yeah, sure. Yes. For some people, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
some um, whose lives are not like mine. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, what about music? So favorite DJ or live show you've ever seen? Hands down, it was Beirut, the band Beirut in concert. It was the first concert, I w it was the first time I left the house alone after I had my son. Mm. And I worked it out that I could have my first alcoholic beverage in nice. a year. Yeah. So I was immediately, you know, wasted from like one glass of wine. <laughs> and because um, then there would be enough time until I got home to nurse to so wait TMI, TMI. Um, and so, but they're just incredible in concert. Like his music, I don't know if you guys know it, but he sings a lot of songs like, all of his songs sound like they're written by an old man who spent years in the gulag. Like they have titles like My Family's Role in the Revolution. Uh -huh. And then you find out that he's like, when he started out, he's like this 19 year old kid who's writing the music in the basement of his parents' house in the Southwest. But they're incredible in concert. They come out and they play all these brass instruments. And at one point in this concert, it was at Music Hall of Williamsburg in Brooklyn, they all were playing and came to one of those full stops, threw their instruments, a different band member caught the instruments, and then they started again playing that instrument they caught. No way. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, I love it. I've seen them several times, and I think they're amazing. That's amazing. I'm also a huge Manu Chow fan. Okay. Yeah. Nice. They were incredible, incredible, incredible. They, they played a live show in Brooklyn that's like also, it probably ties. But the, the, the Beirut one uh -huh. is close to my heart because I just had a baby and yeah, was sure. drinking and having fun. But yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Our first one, my wife and I went to see Tiesto right after our son was born, and we realized uh. after 10 minutes that we just wanted to go home. <laughs> so uh, I might have felt that way if I was there with my husband. Yeah. And I, was, I was free. Well, also, <laughs> Tiesto wasn't like throwing his, I don't even know right. what he, his equipment that's pre-programmed. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for sharing your stories. Those are awesome. Oh, thank you Appreciate so much. You I've loved here. talking to you. Uh, make sure thank you, guys so you much. get the book. <laughs> when it comes out, all these wonders, and listen to the moth. Great. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, that's a wrap. Shout out to Catherine Burns. Shout out to the moth. Shout out to Dropbox. I hope you enjoyed the show. Make sure you leave us a comment at Rebel Radio Net on Twitter, Facebook, wherever you can find us. Uh, tell us what you thought of that one, and we'll try to do more live shows if we can. Most importantly, come back next week for more Rebel Radio. Peace.